Hey guys, it's Sydney, and I'm back here with Sarah still. And we're going to talk about the Atlanta child murders. So Sarah, do you know anything about these murders? Yeah, I know some things about these murders. So approximately 29 children, adolescents, young adults, and adults kind of like before their 30s. I don't know, that's still considered young. Um, Most of them were male, and they were found between July 21st, 1979, and May 1980. 81 and their bodies were found washed up in the i'm gonna try this chattahoochee river and they were also found in abandoned buildings and woodlands so like sarah was saying about the victimology um most of them were all male uh, children adolescents or some young adults and then there were some who haven't reached the age of 30 so around like 27 years old and they were all um black so some of the names of like the first murders were Edward Hope Smith, Alfred Evans, Milton Harvey, and then the later um, murders, William Barrett and Nathaniel Cater, which was actually the body that the police was able to find and convict the guy that we're going to talk about in just a second. So some of the initial efforts to solve the case that were performed by the local police, um, basically every lead turned up empty except for the one lead where they got a call saying, I think he's going to dump them in this river next, which was the Chattahoochee River. (laughs) And um, then they went there and we'll go into that later. But every lead other than that turned up empty and the FBI didn't get involved after a seven-year-old girl was murdered, and um, one of the reasons why every lead, well, one of the reasons why it was so difficult to find the guy was because it wasn't always the same M.O., so, like, they kill, he killed some people one way, and he killed some people another way, and then where he was dumping the bodies, if you will, like, were just such, like, like, you know, some rivers, some woodlands, some buildings, everything was just so different that they weren't able to put together, like, a solid ML for the guy and all the murders overall. So some other evidence that the police had was they've been getting a lot of like calls and they kept hearing these splashes near a bridge um, on the river where they thought that the suspect was dropping the bodies. So what they ended up doing was they ended up staking out where by the river, like by the bridge, and they actually ended up hearing um, the splash. And so as soon as they saw that, they saw the suspect's car speed away. So they ended up pulling him over. The only problem was the suspect, who will now name Wayne Williams, they couldn't arrest him because they couldn't be like, oh, you were the person that caused this flash. Like, they had no idea, but at least they had a suspect in mind. And so the incriminating evidence against him was actually the fiber, and it actually solved the crime because there was this yellowish-green nylon fiber and there was, um, they also had violet acetate fibers, and it was discovered on some of the victims. And there was 28 fibers total discovered on the victims, and they all linked back to Wayne Williams. It was part of um, the carpeting of the rental car that he was using at the time, so it was a direct link to him. And there was also dog hair that was found on the victim's body that was the same hair of his own German Shepherd that they found. So, in addition with the fibers, um, 
having all those fibers weren't exactly common at the time because there was a limited number of people who had the carpet that was that one distinctive type of fiber. And then out of those who had that carpet that they found, who else would also have a bedspread with the light green cotton fibers blended with the violet acetate fibers who would also drive a 1970 Chevrolet uh, station wagon and own a German Shepherd. So now we're going to talk about the su suspect, and Sarah's going to start off by talking about his personal life. So Wayne Williams um, was a freelance photography photographer, and he often moved from job to job, but his home life growing up, his parents were teachers, he had a stable middle-class upbringing, and he graduated from Douglas High School, and he was intelligent and well-spoken, and he was into his adulthood too, but... Um, he never really showed any early warning signs in his childhood or anything, but once he grew older, he wanted to be a music producer, but um, he moved from job to job, and his freelance photography career never took off, and like speculation suggests that he may have felt out of control in life and that the murders gave him a sense of control over something. So a lot of the victims got lured in or this is what the police were thinking especially when they were taking it to trial by the fact that they came from very poor homes so the thought the thought of just making an extra buck or making cash um, lured them really easily so with him being a music producer um, they thought they could better themselves their family and their lives and that got them lured in really easily so if we're going to move on to the trial um, obviously the defense and the prosecution had their own strategies so the defense argued that um, a particular fiber could be found in the homes and vehicles of numerous people. There is no way of saying that this had to be found from him, even though he had the same fiber. So the prosecution um, refuted that by saying that carpet and that bedspread, plus him driving the 1970 Chevrolet station wagon and owning the German Shepherd, for another person to have that would be highly unlikely to have all those characteristics. So... On February 27, 1982, a jury found him guilty of the two murders he was tried for. He got life in prison um, for that. So while he was only tried for two murders, he was accounted for um, the other murders, except for five of them. Five of them are still open to this day. And so the Atlanta's police commissioner closed 21 other cases without trying Williams for them, but just suggesting that he was the one who did it. And then in the late 1990s, Williams filed a habeas corpus petition and requested a retrial. So with that retrial, the judge just rejected it altogether, and he requested one again in 2004, and Williams claimed that the police covered up evidence of involvement of the KKK. So Wayne Williams is in the Hancock State Prison, and he still proclaims his innocence of those murders. So another interesting fact about Wayne Williams, and it may not be a fact, but we've had some other accounts, and we're actually going to play a clip from an interview of him when he's in jail. But one of the facts is, so supposedly... He was trained by the CIA or this special group where he would go out in the forest and, like, learn survival skills. And 
as of right now, he's testifying that something happened, but it wasn't necessarily that. But that was also another um, motive on the prosecution side of convicting him and just maybe understanding him a little bit better of why this happened. Because, again, like Sarah was saying, his family life, his personal life seemed to be okay from the outside looking in, like he had a normal family. But this was another thing that was just kind of odd. And so this interviewer is actually going to ask him about it. And he, one, is not pleased with the question, and two, does not necessarily answer it um, as best as we thought he would. So now we're going to play the video about his CIA involvement. At a secret government camp hidden in the woods near this North Georgia lake, where he was given what could amount to a license to kill. It's called finding myself. What's finding myself? It reads like an autobiography. Go ahead. I'm. I'm. I'm it's. It's a account of your CIA training. We're not going to get into that. Why not? We're not going to get into that. I got a copy of it. Yeah, but we're not going to get into that. Why not? So, as we heard in the clip. This was the interview viewer asking Wayne Williams about this special camp or force, whatever it is. And it was actually from what seemed to be an autobiography about his life called Finding Myself. But he completely des- denies it. Um, even at that point, he's just kind of like, I don't want to get into it. So, again, it's kind of unknown what that background is. But that can be pretty incriminating on the stand if he's not going to say it especially when it has relating to do to being trained to kill. So now we're going to play a clip that explains how Wayne Williams was linked to the murder of Nathaniel Cater and dumping his body over the river. This witness, Robert Henry, did place Wayne Williams with the very last victim, Nathaniel Cater. Henry worked with Cater. He said he saw him leaving this theater with Williams on the night of the bridge incident. Henry has no doubt, even today, about what he saw. So, like the last segment explained, um, this man was able to link Wayne Williams to Nathaniel Cater because he saw them, so it was an eyewitness. And... So now we're going to get into, it's actually going to be him talking about it and how he still believes that he's guilty and how he was able to link them two together. You were holding hands, you know, like male and female. <laughs> well, if you're holding hands with one of my co-workers and both of you are males, what am I supposed to do? Turn my head? When Wayne Williams took the stand, he swore he never met Nathaniel Cater. On the evening Henry said he saw them, Wayne testified he was home, sick and asleep in bed. His mother and father, now deceased, backed him up. Homer Williams said he had the white station wagon until almost midnight. So this video explains what he thought when he first saw Wayne Williams and Nathaniel Cater. And then it also, though, something that's pretty interesting is that Wayne Williams said that that never happened. He was at home sick, and even his parents testified to that. And his dad saying that he actually had the car, which is kind of interesting. And, again, it's 
if you believed he did it or not based on the evidence. And so that's really what it comes down to at that point. Personally, I think that the parents were lying to protect their son, which I guess is understandable in the circumstance because it is their son. But then in the same sense, I don't think they were telling the complete truth. This next clip that we're going to play is showing how Wayne's, Wayne Williams' reaction um, on the third day of trial and how he blew up at the prosecution and how he believes that that was his own fault and that that was what really convicted him of these murders. Under cross-examination, in his third day on the stand, Wayne Williams blew up at prosecutor Jack Mallard. That morning, he was a complete different person. Immediately, he started attacking. He came out of the chute like a bull. When he said, uh, you want the real Wayne Williams, you've got him. And I think all of us, the jury, understood that, yeah. I was probably my own worst enemy. I was a, a arrogant, bus-headed idiot at the time. And I played right into these people's hands. I so this clip is a clip of Wayne Williams talking about himself during the trial and basically saying how he was his own worst enemy, he blew up at the prosecution and that's exactly what they wanted and they got the reaction that they wanted out of him to show that he could actually kill someone. And so he was just saying that he almost did this to himself just based on his reaction. So after Wayne Williams had his huge blow up on trial and on the stand, Obviously, people thought that his character or just him as he was, that's not Wayne Williams. They didn't know what to think, how to react to that, because that was not the Wayne Williams that they saw. This next clip that we're going to play is what he actually called the young children and what he called the prosecutor during his huge blow-up, which, again, back like leading back to his character, it shows a lot just about his own character, which... Again, incriminating evidence just against himself that was able to, one, with the evidence with the fibers, um, put him away. And then, two, just with how he's acting towards other people, be able to put him away faster and easier. As if they said, my God, is this the same Wayne that was up here yesterday? I could see that. When you got angry with the prosecutor, you said, you're a drop shot. I called him a drop What's shot. What's a drop shot? What's that mean? Quite simply, in our vernacular, a drop shot is a guy who's not worth much of anything. <laughs> you know, just drop him and shoot him and get him out of the way. In other words, you're useless. We reminded Wayne that he also called poor black children on the streets the same thing, drop shots. That does not make me a murderer simply because I said somebody is a drop shot or because I called him a drop shot. So this clip is really highlighting... Williams' character, especially when he was calling people drop shots, which again means like something useless, like you're not worthy of anything, like again, you should just disappear. And the fact that he was calling these little children that, that was um, a big hit to his character, especially for the jurors, for everyone in there, the fact that he was calling these little kids drop shots. So the last clip that we're going to play is actually about a mother of one of the children who was murdered and just 
how she reacts to Wayne Williams and hearing his testimony on trial and what she thinks about the whole thing and just about his character in general. Talking about murder, the fact is I didn't kill anybody. Patrick Baltazar's stepmother was watching in court that day. I'm like, this man gotta be crazy. This man, I mean, he it's like he's saying, you know, yeah, I killed him, but you better prove it. You know, can you prove it? He was doing everything he can to outsmart everybody. And it was like, I did it, but can you prove I did it? So this clip is a mother of a child who was murdered, and she basically explains it exactly how it was. He was saying, like, just the way his attitude was, how he walked into the rooms, how he talked was just like, I killed them, but can you prove it? How can you prove that? All right, guys, so that was our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next time soon.